0: I'm James Lawrence, Deputy Director of the Australia-China Relations Institute at the University of Technology, Sydney. Welcome to the ACRI podcast. ACRI is currently hosting the 30th Annual Chinese Economic Society of Australia Conference here at UTS. Just this morning, we released a new ACRI research report titled Connecting the Asia-Pacific, Australian Participation in China's Regional Infrastructure Initiatives. The author of that report is Dr. Jeff Wilson. Jeff Wilson's a senior lecturer at the Asia Research Centre at Murdoch University, and he wears a number of other hats as well. Private consultant is one of them. In that capacity, he's written this report. Um, and he's also the head of research at the Perth US Asia Centre. Welcome to the programme, Jeff. Great to be here. Let me hit you with this question to start off with, and I think it's a, probably the hardest one we've got to get through today. It's good to start hard and work there. Exactly, it. exactly. <laughs> You've written a report that advocates a particular approach to a particular type of engagement that you think Australia should pursue with respect to China's infrastructure initiatives. And in the report, you talk about the Asia Infrastructure Investment Bank and, of course, the Belt and Road Initiative as well. Now, people will tell me, and they've probably told you as well, some people will say the Belt and Road Initiative is a Chinese project that we just can't engage with. For example, there's too many geopolitical risks. Even if that's not the intent, it has geopolitical outcomes and they're unfavourable to our chief security ally, the US. Uh, There's complaints about it being a bilateral initiative, um, and because China's going to be bigger than most of the partners, um, that gives China some unfavourable bargaining power. What's your response to that? For you, the, the point that we just can't engage with it because of those issues. What's your take? What
1: we've had is this surprisingly very polarised debate in Australia about the BRI. And so some parts of Australia see this as a major economic opportunity... Um, to transform infrastructure and connectivity in the region, which will benefit Australia as a country which is economically, geographically, socially and politically Asian. Um, but then you've got other parts of Australia saying this poses a strategic risks around geopolitical conflicts involving China and the US, China and Japan, China and India, um, and a number of questions around this. And it has almost fallen into this... Uh, You're either for the BRI or against the BRI dichotomy, and um, I think this is a really strange dichotomy because the problem with that debate is that both sides in the debate assume assume this kind of universalising view of the Belt and Road Initiative, and the reality of the thing is it's actually highly diverse and variegated. The best way to understand the Belt and Road Initiative is really as a mobilising campaign, Um, where the central Chinese government, from the president down, has effectively sent a message to lower-level actors, whether they're banks, provincial governments, state-owned enterprises, private enterprises, uh, China's diplomatic missions abroad, um, that these actors should try and work together to improve infrastructural connectivity between China and the region and between different parts of the region as well. So it's just go forth and build infrastructure. Um, There's no central plan, there's no fixed template, there's no core strategy. And what really happens within this mobilising campaign is that different parts of the Chinese economy link up with different countries for different infrastructure projects and different partners and work out, almost on a case-by-case basis, different ways for projects to be managed. And they, to an extent, ad hoc, put together governance arrangements. And what this means is there's a huge diversity to the point where it's almost impossible to say what the BRI is and is not. Right. There are some very bottom-up commercial projects that simply involve solving problems and building some in- building a bus stop somewhere that needs to be one. There's some very other major geopolitical projects with big geopolitical implications. The one that all of your listeners will have heard about is Port in Sri Lanka. Mm. And there's everything in between. And so the problem is... In Australia, we've tried to say that the BRI is one or the other, when really it's a whole suite of things from a spectrum along those lines. And the debate we need to be having is not a for or against, but really what kinds of that mix uh, can Australia engage with? What would we like to see it do? And can we even engage in a way that might shape outcomes towards the kind of things that are beneficial for us and uphold the kind of ideas and values and governance standards we in Australia hold dear? So I, I guess my view is that it's impossible to be either for or against something when you don't know exactly what it is. Right.
0: Well, <laughs> it sounds pretty reasonable to me, Jeff. Second question. In your report, and let me quote you here, um, you say that non-engagement is not an option. Uh, you quickly follow by saying blind engagement is not an option either. And then following that, you say incoherent engagement is arguably worse. Now. Is incoherent engagement the way you would characterise? I don't want to put those words in your mouth or that suggestion in but I'd like your comment on that. Is, is it incoherent engagement the way you would characterise Australia's engagement with China's infrastructure initiatives so far? And if yes, what leads you to that conclusion? And, and talk us through why you think it might be the worst approach of all. Um,
1: look, I th- I th- mixed messages would definitely be the best way to understand Australia's policy. And just to be fair, this is not a unique problem for Australia. Um, every country in Asia is grappling with this question of how do we engage with this broad Chinese initiative that means lots of different things in lots of different contexts? What's, what's our policy? So we're not alone in having to answer this question, and Australia's not alone in having sending mixed messages on the question either. But we certainly do see in Australia these two economic versus security imperatives coming to the fore, that kind of one step forwards, one step back. Um, When we talk about the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank, or AIIB, there was an unfortunate incident in early 2015 where Australia flip-flopped on this, sending messages we would join, then a cabinet decision that we wouldn't, then quickly reversed with another one. um, And in the end, Australia chose chose to join the bank and participated in the developments of its governance mechanisms quite effectively but in a situation where you're having a quite divisive domestic debate and flipping back and forth between two positions really limits Australia's ability to send a coherent message and represent with its partners. The same thing's true for the Belt and Road Initiative, where Australia the Australian government has sent ministers and senior officials to various, the Belt and Road Forum and Summit in Hong Kong and, and Shanghai, but on the other hand, it's rejected some other proposals for an MOU, um, for exploring linkages between the North Australia Infrastructure Fund and Belt and Road projects. So you've got, in that sense, this kind of, we're in for some things, but not for other things. And the, the problem you get here is that it makes it hard for not just China but other countries in Asia who are going to be part of some of these multilateral ishi- initiatives to know what Australia's stance is. Okay. If you say yes to some things and no to others, you're considered a bit of a, not unreliable, but, well, you know, is, is Australia part of the discussion? What's their position? Where, where are they? What do they stand for? What, what, you know, to some extent, what, what is Australia's limits as well? What will they say yes to? What will they say no to? China doesn't know. The region doesn't know. And to be honest, I think Australia doesn't know. Right. And and you can't represent yourself effectively in any form of diplomacy unless you know what your position is and you can tell the people you're negotiating with what your position is. And so it's really important that Australia kind of get beyond that binary debate, work out a, a nuanced Position and communicate
0: it to the region. Right now, Jeff, that's exactly what you've tried to do—that in yeah, yeah. this report to outline a, a, a middle path, a nuanced position. Mm. So, can you talk us through our listeners through the the highlights of your report um, that you think would, would lay out an approach to engaging with China on these initiatives um, that also takes into account Australia's uh, broader <laughs> national interests, such as those around transparency and governance? Sure. So I think you know if we're going to boil this down to a c- central policy problem
1: when we're talking about engagement what we with infrastructure initiatives both Chinese and non-Chinese in Asia what we're really talking about is questions about project governance. So when there's a particular infrastructure project whether it's Chinese backed, Japan banked, ADB, AWIB, whoever's backing it, how do we know that that project is going to be well governed, transparent, fit for purpose? and not pose major risks of a, becoming a proxy or a flashpoint for a geopolitical conflict between some of the involved parties. Um, and because major infrastructure projects are inherently risky. They have massive multi-billion dollar budgets. They have long time scales of 20, 30, 40 years. Um, for some of the most valuable ones, they're going to cross multiple countries, yes. You know, like a power grid in ASEAN that might have 10 countries connected their electricity grids up. Um, so they also uh, cover a lot of different political systems. So they're inherently risky. So the question for Australia is, and, and we can't escape that risk, right? The nature of infrastructure projects, expensive long-term crossing borders, <laughs> risk is part of the terrain. If you won't have no risk appetite, don't turn up. So the question is, if this is important and we need to be a part of it, what do we do to manage risk? How do we get better, how do we get more confidence that the, we know what the risks are, that we can minimise them where we can't eliminate them and we can build project and institutional governances that make us confident that we'll never eliminate it, but we can make it a lot lower, so Australian governments, Australian businesses can engage both in participating in the construction and also using infrastructure. Yep. The key question for Australia there is really about how do we make a, how do we establish comfort, to be able to engage. And Jeff, how do we do it? The Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank. Okay, (laughs) why why is that? So the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank is a unique part. And often in a lot of discussions in Western countries, the AIIB and the BRI have been like jammed together in people's minds. They were announced at about the same time. China started them both. Um, There has been certainly some commentary referring to the AIIB as the Belt and Road Bank. Um, But really, they're actually quite different. The Belt and Road Initiative is, is large as I described earlier, a kind of a Chinese mobilising campaign that often works on a bilateral basis and will take lots of different forms in lots of different countries. In comparison, the AIIB is a multilateral development bank. Um, it currently has 66 member states. It has a, it's an international treaty organisation. It has a formal charter, a membership list, capital subscriptions. Um, but most importantly, it has these mutually agreed governance rules that are enforced through institutional mechanisms through the bank. So it is very much like the World Bank, the European um, Investment Bank, the Asian Development Bank. The AWIB fits into that multilateral global governance landscape. And one of the great things about that is that the AWIB offers a governance guarantee. If there's an infrastructure project which the AWIB has made a loan to, that means that anyone that's involved in that can be confident that that project is going to be subject to formal. Transparent rules around good project governance. Yes, right. It will be transparent, it will be commercially oriented, and it will be, as far as can be d- defended, economically,
0: socially, and environmentally sustainable. And these are rules that Australia had a hand in shaping, right? Mm-hmm. When it was. Came on board as a founding member of the aWB is that
1: yeah. correct? That's correct. So Australia joined the aWB in March 2015, um, and once the bank started there was, for the, about the first six months of its life, there were discussions amongst the initial 54 founding members as to how would we run this thing. Um, and Australia played a really key role in those discussions. We partnered with um, Germany, South Korea and uh, the United Kingdom and advocated strongly for an AIB that would reproduce international best practices around multilateral financing. And if you go and look at the AWIB, the result has been largely what Australia asked for. So um, it's an it's an Australia
0: infrastructure investment bank in, in a sense. It, it, it?
1: it is as much it is much Australia's <laughs> as it is China's as it is Indonesia's as it is Korea's. <laughs> um, and if you look at many of the policies, um, and there's been some uh, some um, legal research that's uh, explored this issue, that most of the AWIB policies are very close to what you see at the World Bank. Right. Um, and in fact, in some cases, you can actually look at policies and you can get key phrases right, that have been right. Lifted. Not, not quite <laughs> cut and paste, but very close. <laughs> and, and what and what this re- reflects is that the AIB embodies established norms and practices and governance standards, which Australia and the United Kingdom and the United States and China and Japan have endorsed for... Decades. Yes. yes. This is this is a framework that everybody's comfortable with, that when countries like Australia joined the bank, we said, we love this initiative, but we want it to have good governance. And the Chinese negotiators who are leading those discussions said, we agree and we're going to build that in. Mm. And this is why we have an institution that has top quality governance mechanisms. So when the AIIB is involved in a, a Chinese infrastructure project in Indonesia or Central Asia, you know that it is has those governance transparency frameworks yep. over the top of it. And this really raises, your, raises Australia's confidence about project governance. When the AIIB is there, you know it's got good policies, you're working with good mm. partners, and it's going to be good fit-for-purpose infrastructure. And it's taking away
0: that mixed-message problem you were talking about before.
1: Look, to be absolutely clear, there is certainly, because the BRI is so diverse, there will be some projects that will have problems. Um, in fact, the World Bank and the Asian Development Bank, if you look through their history, have had not, not every infrastructure project's a risky and there's been some rather unfortunate infrastructure yeah. in every country in the world through the years. You can never eliminate this. So it's not an exercise of eliminating risk, yes, but yeah. it's about identifying sure. it, managing it, and when things go wrong, having a transparent framework yeah. that makes that clear and it helps you address the problems. Yeah. And the a, having the AWIB involved... Is a way that Australia can reduce those risks and
0: increase transparency about where they occur. Okay. Jeff, let's now put Australian engagement with Chinese infrastructure initiatives in a broader regional context. Now, you're not just a China observer. In fact, a lot of the commentary I read of yours is about the US and Japan in mm. particular. Um, so let's talk about those two countries. If the Australian government came out and said, look, uh, we actually like Jeff Wilson's approach. Um, oh, I certainly this, hope they do. <laughs> me, me too. Um, and they thought that was a way forward, so they, they put it on, on the record that um, we're going to be more consistently engaged with the Bolton Road Initiative using the AIIB as a mechan- mechanism to do so. Is this an Australian government approach that you think the likes of the US and Japan would be comfortable with? with.
1: Look, the first observation would be that many governments in the region, in fact probably all, have at least some level of reservation or uncertainty around the Belt and Road Initiative. And this is because it's so diverse. It can mean so many different things. Um, Even governments, for example, Indonesia, which has actively courted China for infrastructure BRI projects, still, if you look at Indonesian policy debates, they're weighing up the same question we are. How do we make the most of this and, and get the things we want? Um, and you've got still also got some governments which have declined formal invitations, such as Japan, which is not a member of the AWIB, or India, which has said it doesn't want to formally link up to the Belt and Road Initiative. These governments have still expressed a desire to work with China in other ways. Right. So uh, Japanese Prime Minister Abe uh, earlier this year said that, that Japan would like to cooperate with China on the Belt and Road, even if they're not in the AWIB. And India, which has said no to BRI, is a founding member of the AIB, one yes, of its largest right, shareholders. Right, right. So, 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 lo- lo- so, so this
0: in or out idea is a little bit silly in a way. Unfortunately,
1: Australia is not the only country that suffers this in or out problem. Right. We're, we're in unfortunately good company in this regard. <laughs> but, but, it, but what that also tells you is, contrary to some of the discussions we've seen about geopolitics in Asia, where some some commentators will have you believe that Asia is splitting into a two-sides-up, Pro China, pro BRI side, and a pro America, yeah, right. pro TPP before Trump, and now who knows what else. Um, with Trump side, you know that Asia's kind of being cleaved into a pro China and pro America camp, and it's time to choose. I mean, unfortunately, in Australia, um, Hugh White's China choice book has used meant that's been a framing device for many of our conversations. But the thing is, that's that's really not the case. Like most countries have said a tacit yes. We're interested in this, we'll be part, interested in some parts and not other parts, and we want to have a discussion with China about how we can shape it in a way that we're comfortable with. And as the AIIB case demonstrates, China's happy to negotiate and compromise yes, on right, these things. Right. So I, I guess the point this says is Australia doesn't have to make a stark yes or no choice here. Yes. Saying yes to the AWIB and we would be happy for Belt and Road participation if we can use the AIIB to help make us feel more comfortable about governance... This isn't something thats is, means that you're going to be telegraphing yourself into a China or a US camp. Um, it's Or, you know, that you will make friends with China by alienating Japan or make friends with India by alienating China. Um, all of these stark choices are good, you know, airport fiction. And if you want to move a quarterly essay, you could put this stuff in there. But in reality, the diplomacy is far more nuanced and the discussion is far more complex. So what Australia needs to really do is do the same thing that other countries are doing and say, this is infrastructure, connectivity, the gaps are a huge problem, we agree that they need to be fixed and we want to help with that. We as Australia have a distinct set of national interests that we want to protect. We also have a distinct set of things to offer in terms of engineering, project finance capacity that many other countries in Asia don't, natural resources. So we have things that we can bring to the table that you might not have and there are things that can kind of conditions and our interests and our values and our priorities that come with that. And putting those things together and articulating that in a way that means an India, an Indonesia or China knows what we're putting on the table and what we're asking for and then you
0: can have a discussion. Yeah.
1: Rather than thinking this is an in, out, for or against thing,
0: it just... It, it makes no sense. <laughs> Nuance, Jeff Wilson. That's a that's a, a, an attribute that's often missing from uh, particular, Australia, particularly in the age of Trump. I'm sure. Sure. <laughs> okay. Well, that's Japan and the US, mm. and it sounds to me, like I say, broadly, they would be comfortable because <clears throat> Australia, essentially Australia wouldn't be choosing one or the other. So it's it's not really where we have to um, mm. uh, um, align with either of those those bigger powers in Asia. Let's talk about some of the uh, smaller ones, but just as significant from Australia's perspective, um, say Australia maintains its current approach. It says, mm. thanks, Jeff Wilson, the report. We're not going to do it. We're going to continue with our current approach. Where do you see Australia positioned on the Belt and Road relative to, say, ASEAN, Southeast Asian countries in five years' time? Where do you think they're going to move? Mm. Um, and, and where would Australia be positioned to them in five years' time if, if we adopt the yes. current approach, which we may well do? Yeah. Well, look, the biggest risk for Australia on current
1: policy settings is that Australia will has, at the moment, no capacity to shape how the BRI is going to develop. Um, The thing about it is it's happening whether we like it or not. China's the world's second largest economy in PPP terms. It is now a net capital exporter. It has targeted infrastructure in the region, and this is a problem, and quite rightly, they should. They should not be criticised for trying to fix one of the major barriers to economic integration in Asia. So the BRI is happening. Australia likes it, Australia doesn't like it, it's happening. Um, Unfortunately, we're a small country on the periphery of Asia and we're not a great power in the region. But the problem that you have is, at the moment, Australia's not at the table. There's no mechanisms for us to talk to uh, China about projects, about third countries. uh, uh, Imagine a a BRI project in Indonesia, which Australian agriculture exporters could use to sell into Southeast Asian markets. We simply, uh, at the moment, we just take what comes down the pipeline, and if this continues, I think what we might end up is we might end up with the BRI we don't want rather than the BRI we do. Right. Um, we're not going to be able to see capital, we're not going to be able to discuss about how um, energy infrastructure in Southeast Asia, ports, roads, railways might connect up and link up with Australian infrastructure. If that infrastructure gets built, it probably isn't going to be connected with ours unless we're in the room saying can we have this happen and we have something to contribute as well. So if you're not engaged, you have no capacity to shape outcomes. And the great concern that many analysts would have is that if Australia is really genuine in our desire for quality, fit for purpose, good governance infrastructure in Asia, and we're really genuine about we're a country that's integrated with the region and we want to build that integration with Asia, we need to be in the room to make sure we achieve the outcomes that we want. So if you take quality infrastructure seriously, you need to be part of a discussion affecting quality infrastructure and connectivity Mm. so the biggest risk about current policy settings is that we get a belt and road and australia is just left on the margins
0: right okay final question jeff i think this gets at this one about how australia might support um high-quality infrastructure in the region, China's not the only country talking about this. Um, Other governments in the region are either launching or proposing their own infrastructure initiatives alongside the BRI. And I remember when Malcolm Turnbull was standing alongside Donald Trump earlier this year, they talked about a memorandum of understanding uh, on infrastructure cooperation in the region. So there's one example. Now, some have suggested this is evidence of competing infrastructure diplomacy emerging between Asia's major powers. What does the landscape of infrastructure initiatives in Asia currently look like to you, and how does this interact with Australia's strategic choices? This is a really
1: important question, because one of the things that it's really important to remember is that when it comes to infrastructure in Asia, the BRI is not the only game in town. Yes. Um, It probably is the largest by capitalisation and certainly ambition, but there are several other similar initiatives going on as well. Um, I uh, before we did this interview, I tried to make a list of them, and it got so long I can't give you the full one. It runs to over thirty. Uh, but some of the key highlights: um, the Japanese government has a program called the Partnership for Quality of Infrastructure, or PQI, which is very similar to the BRI, where the Japanese government's using its development banks and its aid agency JICA to refocus attention on infrastructure connectivity. ASEAN has something they call the Master Plan on ASEAN Connectivity from twenty fifteen. Again a system where governments are getting together to negotiate regulatory cooperation to make sure that complex cross-border infrastructure actually gets built. Um, The Asian Development Bank, which has been in existence since 1966, spends about two-thirds of its budget on infrastructure, and it's increasing its spend about 30% 30 in the last few years. So the, the kind of point here is that China is not the only country that's identified this as a problem. It's not the only country that's putting... Capital, both yes, yeah. financial capital and political capital, on the line to fix these problems, everyone in the region is getting in on the infrastructure game. And so, what we need to be asking in Australia is kind of how do we fit into that landscape rather than having this debate on the BRI? The policy debate in Australia up until now has been a kind of reductive thing about should I stay or should I go in terms of the BRI. And I suspect many of your listeners may never have heard of the Japanese Partnership for Quality Infrastructure. I I haven't, Jeff. It is it is capitalised at two hundred billion US dollars. Just a mere two
0: hundred billion. Just right. a mere two hundred billion yeah, dollars. Yeah. Have
1: you ever heard of it? Because how yeah. many newspaper stories on a daily basis would you right. see about the Belt and Road? It's very interesting in itself. Yeah. That's a topic for another podcast. Mm, certainly, yeah. certainly. But but what this is is there's a lot of different things going on, and they're they're all slightly different models, different partners, different focuses, different governance arrangements. And what we really need to be doing is saying rather than are we in or out of the BRI, firstly recognise that the BRI is diverse so you can't be in or out and secondly realise the BRI is part of a landscape and we really need to ask more self-directed questions about ourselves here. How do do we, as a country that is economically, politically, geographically and increasingly socially Asian, what's Australia's role in this landscape? What are the principles and goals we, we prioritise? What are the pros and cons in some of the d- different approaches? And That notes that no model is 100% perfect. Infrastructure is never risk-free and the yes. nature of yeah. these projects is yeah. things are going to go wrong. They will. How can we be- minimise that and manage it? And how can we have a conversation with other countries in Asia, including but not limited to China, might I add, to shape outcomes to maximise the positive and minimise mm. the negative aspects? Mm. Um, Australia really hasn't gotten to a point where we're having that kind of discussion as what can we offer, what do we want and how does the BRI and the PQI and the ASEAN MPAC and BIMSTEC and the GMS and all the others I could have listed, how do these all fit together and how can you put this complex package of partners and interests together and find a workable solution that solves an infrastructure problem we've all got? That's the debate we need to be having in this country, not BRI, should I stay or should I go? And
0: that's the discussion that your report aims to start. So, Jeff Wilson, congratulations on the report. Um, it's available on our website. I'm sure our listeners will all be interested in downloading it and um, digesting it in great detail. Tell your friends. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Jeff, thanks for coming today. Cheers. Thanks very much, Jones. Our next episode will feature Simone van Nivenhuisen, a researcher here at ACRI. She will discuss her recent research into Australian and Chinese government understandings of the international order. It turns out they're not the same, and Simone will tell you where they're different and where they are similar. If you enjoyed this episode, you can subscribe to the ACRI podcast on iTunes or SoundCloud. Or listen to all the episodes on our website, australiachinarelations.org. There you'll also find out more about ACRI's research and events. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter at ACRI underscore UTS and on LinkedIn. Thanks for listening.